cultural upheaval right now in the United States can find its roots, I think, in people clamoring for complete autonomy. We've made this point before. In other words, we're trying to have freedoms away from God, away from anyone infringing upon our perceived freedoms. Slavery struggled with the question of the foundation for law, and so does our culture today. It was illustrated in the, uh, the clip. Now, Israel made a clear decision to reject law from God. And we read from Hosea the results. When we reject God, what happens to us as a society? Let's all stand as we take a look at it. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Judah, Jacob, according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, Return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Father, I pray once again that you'll give us clarity with your word. You'll give us boldness in the communication receptivity, humility in our hearts, and then, Lord, the power to put it into practice. I pray again that you'll make us your holy people, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The east wind is a nod to the Sirocco, northern African wind that blows across the Mediterranean. It was known for being hot off the Sahara Desert and dusty. And notice that this wind took place all day long, it says. In other words, it's relentless. What it's meaning is that this refers to Ephraim or Israel's hope for help as they rejected the law of God and his person through idolatry. Their efforts, independent of God, are as helpful as a desert wind. And because their hearts reject God, because they have rejected the moral compass that God has given in his law, the result is massive social injustice, falsehoods, violence, throughout the culture. See, when people reject truth, their actions will follow. The society will display that. When people reject truth, what do you have left? You basically have political power that people are going to grab. Truth today is rejected in at least one form of people 
unwilling to even hear another side to issues. Take, for instance, Amazon that decided to swing its mighty club to no longer sell when Harry became Sally, a book questioning the ideology of the trans movement because it said it portrayed LGBTQ plus and identity as a mental illness. That was a charge that the author denies. Now, my issue is not with LGBTQ and all that. That's, that's another sermon. What is disturbing is that the leading seller of books in the United States is now in the ideological business, eliminating books that give an opinion different than the group think, that everything goes. And anyone who dares put up a caution sign needs to be silenced. We see this on Facebook, major media outlets. In fact, I read this week, Ken Burns, the documentarian, called Mark Zuckerberg evil for what he's doing in shutting down speech upon Facebook. So much for free speech. All of this makes a point that I want to um, communicate. Christians are no longer the home team in the United States. Now, if you think that's a surprise, then I don't want to blow your court today, but uh, I want you to listen to Hebrews 11 that gives a perspective, understanding that we're not the home team, understanding that we have opposition. Listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Christians are strangers in this world. They are exiles who yearn for a kingdom not of this earth. It was true of Israel. It was true of the early church. And it is true for us today. So Amazon and our culture embrace their own realities. Truth is not the goal. Their ideology is. So how does God respond? Let me ask you this. Do you see in Hebrews 11 high anxiety from God? See him freaking out? See him telling people, go and make sure you get your guy in office or you can't trust anything that's going on. You see that? No. We don't see God worrying about the political situation, or who's in power right now. Not to say we don't have vested interest. I get that. But my faith is not dependent on that. My joy is not dependent on that. My foundation is not dependent on that. What we see is a God who is in control the entire time. 
And he's telling us, listen, opposition is a part of living on this earth. It's as if God is saying, I'm surprised you're surprised about it. Because I've told you continually. However, here's the problem in Hosea. Israel was fitting in with the culture. Israel was worshiping the idols. It's like Israel was not just reading the books that Amazon approved, but they were swallowing the group think, hook, line, and sinker. They were not just watching the porn, they were participating in it. They were not just reading the murder mysteries. Violence was their cup of tea. Israel was completely enculturated. In other words, the culture was in them. And they were acting it out. And unfortunately, could that not be said for some faith communities today? We're too concerned with being too cool. We gotta, we gotta reflect the culture so they'll like us. And once you're on that road, my friends, that spells trouble. Just be who you are. Be real. I don't have to wear skinny jeans to be liked. Okay? <laughs> Plus, they're out of style now anyway, aren't they? They were in maybe 10 years ago. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter. Just be who you are. Be authentic. And not worry about whether people are liking you all the time. Unless you're a jerk, then quit being a jerk and then people will like you more. So. <laughs> As God's judgment was echoing in their ears, Israel wanted to have Assyria as an ally. Now they also made a side deal with Egypt to kind of hedge their bets. A king of Israel paid tribute to Assyria and entered into an alliance. And when relations with Assyria soured, Oil was sent to Egypt as kind of a backup plan, right? This was all done. It's not that it's wrong for a country to make uh, an agreement with another country, but this was all done in rejection of God as their protector. In other words, instead of going to God, they were going to these other countries, right? So they rejected God, and they rejected his law, and it was seen in how they were maneuvering with their politics. They disregarded the judgment of God and thought that these alliances would keep them safe, not God. You know, in our old neighborhood, we moved a couple years ago, but in our old neighborhood, we lived there for about 30 years, there was a man who had a full-grown lion in a cage in his backyard. Right until the city made him get rid of it, right? In plain view of kids to come and pet through the, you know, chain link fence if they wanted. I mean, dude, a friggin' lion in your backyard. What are you thinking, right? And Israel was like trying to pet a lion. And that's usually not a good idea. But that's what it looked like, right? Because these nations are ultimately going to tear you apart. The southern kingdom of Judah 
was not as far down the line of evil as Israel, but it was still bad. And if God was condemning Judah and Israel was much worse, what hope does Israel have to fade the heat, to not be judged? When he refers to Jacob, he is referring to one of the revered figures of Israel, synonymous with Israel. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought in his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. So, Jacob is now the subject, and he's being used as an example to Israel and of Israel. In Genesis 25, 26, we read of Jacob grabbing the heel of his twin brother Esau coming out of the womb. And later, as an adult, we read in Genesis 32 how Jacob wrestled with an angel in the appearance of a man. We read this, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Then he said, let him go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob, the one who strove with his brother as a baby, the one who strove with an angel, was depicted as a man who kind of devised his own plans for his own success. Do what, whatever he had to do to get ahead. Not necessarily going to God with that, right? Then we also read that he repented. He wept in repentance at Bethel, and God met him there. Hosea makes use of the Genesis account of Jacob's life, not necessarily in chronological order, but to make the point that his life was a mixed bag. Could we not say that about all of us? All of our lives are a mixed bag, right? There's sin and there's repentance. There are seasons when we're not doing so well, seasons when we're doing a lot better. But notice in the repentance, he met God. God said to Jacob, and this is in Genesis 35, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Hosea said not only did Jacob meet God at Bethel, but God spoke to him. What this tells us then is that repentance is a space where we invite God's presence and voice into our lives when while we were in our sin, we weren't feeling his presence. We weren't hearing his voice. That's what those sinful seasons do. Cuts off our ears. Listening. In fact, one of the things I think dangerous about the times we live in is the temperature of discussions going quickly from lukewarm to kind of a a boiling point in a matter of seconds. Maybe it's the COVID season. I don't know. People's margin seems to be a lot smaller than what it used to be. Anxiety is running higher. We see this consistent 
haranguing and quick to judge atmosphere of, of social media when it comes to politics and race or immigration or related topics. I recently erased Facebook from my uh, phone just so I don't have to deal with it all the time. I can just feel my blood pressure going up as I'm reading. Really? This is what you're saying? All right. The point is that people are being so quick to judge, so quick to speak their mind. It looks to me like the bravado of a seven-year-old with a super soaker, all right? Because that's about the maturity level. Never mind that the facts don't match. Never mind that there's not an opportunity to really have a conversation and hash this out. That's not important. The notion is, I have an opinion, therefore I am automatically right. And just such pride, arrogance, no humility. During the Great Awakening, when the Spirit of God revived much of our nation's early faith, Jonathan Edwards was presiding over a, a massive prayer meeting. Eight hundred men joined him to pray. Into that meeting, a woman sent a message asking the men to pray for her husband. She sent a note, and it described a man who had become unloving, prideful, and and difficult, and Edwards read the message in private and then read it to the entire group and then took a chance and said, you know what? We need to pray for this man. So I'm going to ask you, if you're here, to raise your hand. 300 men raised their hand. It's refreshing to see that kind of humility. I've seen both. I've seen very humble men. I've seen people leave a meeting in a huff, shake a fist, try to hit me, threaten, yell, call names, criticize, refuse to forgive hold on to plain lies instead of admitting they're wrong. And that was all in the same meeting. <laughs> People refusing to pray. It's pride. It's, it's arrogance. And what God needs to do is call us all to humble ourselves should say God needs to do that. We need to respond to that. He's doing that. He's calling us to humble ourselves. Admit when we're wrong in our thinking and, and in our behavior. Instead, what do we do in our culture? Change mates, change jobs, change churches, change friends. Do you ever thought, maybe, maybe God wants to humble us first? It's not that maybe there aren't times when that might be called for. But how about first humbling ourselves, admit our part, and be responsible to him to mend our hearts, mend our relationships. 
What was it that God was saying to Jacob? The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Like Jacob, Israel needed to return to the Lord of hosts. Israel continues to live like old Jacob, the manipulator. They need to be the man of the new Jacob, the confessor, the man for repentance. But Israel continued to act like a manipulator, a man without grace. And like the old Jacob, they struggle for success and seek security, not in God, but in dishonest alliances. So this is what I want you to do, Israel. Be like the new Jacob. Seek justice, love, walk in faith. That's the fruit of repentance. If Israel will repent, they will be like the best sense of their ancestor rather than the worst sense. There are two combustible ideas, I think, that we're presented with that rarely we have them meet. And the first, we have sinned. And we have sinned gravely in heart and deed. And secondly, there's this rumor going around that the Lord is a holy God. Some don't quite believe it. But you know what repentance does? It brings these two ideas together. And many people think that when you bring those two ideas together, it's just it's going to blow their life to smithereens. And so what we have is a fascination with self-esteem that the culture exhibits, and so we get into it. Society's hooked on affirmation steroids, and that's created a faith that hardly knows how to even pronounce the word. Repentance. It's not even a part of most people's vocabulary in their Christian life. And yet, when we sin so much, how can repentance not be a part of our regular daily life? There's perhaps no man outside of Hitler more plainly seen as evil in the past couple generations than Saddam Hussein, former leader of Iraq. Hussein personally and politically exhibited a reign of terror, enriched himself at the expense of others, murdering thousands. Soon after his capture from an eight-foot hole that one observer said was filled with mice and rats, he was flown to a secret location for a meeting with four members of Iraq's general council. They wanted to confirm that it was indeed Hussein. And when the men were offered the chance to peek through a window to see if it was, they said, no, well, we want more than that. We want to talk to him. Despite his condition, Saddam was defiant and unrepentant. Ahmad Kalabi, the head of the Iraqi National Congress said he was quite lucid 
He had command of his faculties. He would not apologize to the Iraqi people. He did not deny any of the crimes he was confronted with having done. He tried to justify them. The world is crazy, said one of the council members in the room. I was in the torture chamber in 1979, and now he was sitting there powerless in front of me without anybody stopping me from doing anything to him. Just imagine. We were arguing, and he was using very foul language. And the four men spent about 30 minutes in the small room confronting Saddam with his crimes. And as they left, the one council member delivered these final words to the former dictator. May God curse you. Tell me, when are you going to be accountable to God and the day of judgment? What are you going to tell him about the mass graves, the Iran-Iraq war, thousands and thousands executed? What are you going to tell God? And Saddam answered, just using more foul language. You know, we read this, we hear this, and maybe some of us can say, yeah, you know, repentance is really hard. Or maybe we're prone to point a finger at saying, you know, that guy, you know, he really sinned. He's really evil. Yeah, when I look honestly in my own heart, I don't just see the capability of sin, but I see sin over the life of 63 years. You see, I am better than you in this sense. I have sinned more than most of you. That's not full humility. That's an honest evaluation of dealing with my own heart and knowing firsthand the old Jacob seasons and other times a new Jacob of repentance. Knowing both makes me so appreciative of God's grace and makes my heart so grateful that he loves me and still chooses to use me, not because I deserve it. The truth is, none of us lives a life of constant joy and victory and answered prayer. And it makes me want to puke every time Christian leaders depict that from a stage or TV program, that this is what life is, the Christian life. Yes, there is answered prayer, there is joy, but there's also a lot of struggle and failure and sin and then repentance. We are a mixed bag, are we not? And I'm not just speaking of ourselves, but I'm also speaking of how we look at others. Because we all have people in our lives that have hurt us, that have been critical of us. And recently Janet and I were talking about this, and I said, you know, this one scene just recently came to my mind of so-and-so wanting to pray together with me. And it's like I haven't thought of it in years. And yet, this is a person who deeply hurt us, who was so critical of us. It was great hurt. And tears like rain came. <laughs> The point is, we are prone 
to broad brush others who have maybe been critical or maybe even an enemy without taking into account that they too have old Jacob, new Jacob seasons. That they're a mixed bag just like we are, right? And the sooner we quit acting like everything has to be shiny and victorious, the sooner we can get to the job of real ministry where people are at. Here's some of the other offenses Israel needed to repent from. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. False balances. This speaks of rigged weights and measures. Fixed scales to cheat a customer. You know, the law of Moses demanded honest measures. Leviticus said, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. An ephah was a dry measure for a bushel, and a hin was a measure for liquid. So the Lord doesn't want us like those, you know, potato chip bags where you have, it looks like a gallon bag that's all puffed up and then you get, and it's about a pint of chips at the bottom, okay? Israel allowed these dishonest practices to continue without addressing them. They accepted these evils as just the way it is. That's just the way we do business. And you have a class of people that are wealthy and they're getting wealthy off of others. And the system was rigged and God hated it. And he was saying, you, Israel, are responsible for it. And notice what they said. Hey, everything's okay. We're fine. We're getting rich. How can it be wrong? Our church is growing. So what is there to criticize? We have money. So why should we be bothered by these smaller issues? A little dishonesty here, a little false marketing there. It's just a part of the system, right? No. See, there are people who believe their wealth has put them above the law. Society that runs with only profit on their mind instead of integrity is going to be one prone to defraud people. Overcharging, short-changing, exorbitant interest rates. The nation learned to accept oppressive practices as legitimate. These sins of greed are compounded by Israel's pride and arrogance, unwillingness to repent from its own testimony. We learn that Israel attributes its wealth just to their own effort. God had nothing to do with it. 
Now that is seriously prideful. The truth be known, there's some of us, you look at the house, you look at the bank account, look at the boat, enjoy the vacation, and you're saying, you know what? I'm pretty hot stuff. You may not say those words exactly, but you take great pride in it without a thought that God has given you this to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with any of those things I mentioned. But are we seeing them as a gift of God to enjoy, as a way to to leverage influence for the kingdom of God? We're seeing it as a way to puff up. Keeping up with the Joneses, I'm better than the next guy. Listen to the warning that God gave to Israel. This is so interesting. This is the exact opposite of what Israel did, but God warned them before Hosea. This is not what I want you to be like. Listen to this. You shall eat and be full. You shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness and its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who uh, brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. For it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. See, our fleshly pride builds a cardboard fortress that humility must every day tear down. I'm telling you, If you have half the flesh I got, it's a daily thing. It's a moment-by-moment thing. Because my pride can run amok. Humility is the call that God is giving to each of us in our marriage and how we speak to one another with humility. In our jobs, Maybe God has put you in a position of authority. Are you serving those under you or are you using that position to make sure everybody knows who the boss is? Don't be that guy. Particularly when they know you're a Christian. Don't be that guy. Be the guy who serves. Be the guy who admits that they're wrong when you're wrong. See, those are the ways in which the kingdom of God is spread and influenced. Let's pray.